Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Welcome to On The Rock, God's unchanging word for changing times with Dr. Camille Majdali, Director of Teach All Nations Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Camille lived and studied in the Middle East, served as a principal of a leading Bible college and now travels the world teaching God's word. He has an extraordinary knowledge of the Bible and a dynamic ability to make God's truth come alive in a real, practical way. This episode of On The Rock will give you keys to survive and succeed in the days ahead by hearing and doing the words of Jesus. This particular lesson is called Give Us A Son. It's based on John chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. And the basic question is this. In order for Jesus to do what he does, for example, turning the water into wine or cleansing the temple as a one-man army, not only chasing the animals out, but overturning the money changers' tables with all the coins splattering across the floor. Well, who is this man to do the things that he does? If he's a mere human or somebody with a grand ego, then he really should be stopped. But if he is exactly who he says he is, then he is someone to be obeyed and to be worshipped. And so... This question is, give us a sign, or can you give us a sign that you are exactly who you say you are? It would be good to just remind ourselves the bigger picture. We're looking at, verse by verse, the glorious gospel of John. The fourth gospel, it's the non-synoptic gospel. It's in a class of its own, because it deals with information that is found nowhere else in the Gospels, or indeed the New Testament. At the same time, it neglects certain things found in other Gospels. This is not a problem, nor is it a contradiction. Actually, it's complementary. These Gospels complement or support each other. Some overlap, but oftentimes fresh insight or information not found elsewhere. We learned that this Gospel was written by John, the beloved disciple somebody who had a very unique perspective about Jesus. After all, he was one of the inner circle of the twelve disciples. He was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the foster son, or in many cases, he really was, uh, how should you say, the caretaker for the mother of Jesus, Mary, even though she had her own biological children. He also was present on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, began his ministry anew as a member and leader of the Christian church with the same anointing, shall we say, or with an anointing for the supernatural as Jesus had. And therefore, John's perspective is invaluable and unique. And we find that this gospel is written to build the case that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the soon-coming King, the Son of David, who will rule on David's throne. He's also building the case that Jesus is divine. He is the Son of God. If the symbol for the Gospel of Matthew is a lion, highlighting Jesus' kingly call, and if the symbol for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is an ox symbolizing his hard work, and the symbol of Jesus in Luke is 
the perfect man, for he's known as the Son of Man, then the symbol for Jesus in the Gospel of John is the eagle, because the eagle flies high. He is a heavenly creature. And that's interesting because those four images of the lion, the ox, the man, the eagle, are very much a motif, both in the book of Ezekiel as well as in the book of Revelation. So after the spring house cleaning that Jesus performed in the temple, now he's being asked to give a sign. And we're about to find out what that is. Let's have a read now from John chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Our lesson is called, Give Us a Sign. And again, that reference is the second chapter of John, chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. This is God's word. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name, when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and he needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Our reading is from John chapter 2, verses 18 to 24, and our lesson is called, Give Us a Sign. Now, it is a legitimate question. Please give us proof of who you are, especially because your claims are grand. But, amazingly, this question also can be a bit illegitimate, simply because these people are not asking out of genuine, sincere curiosity, but more out of defiance. Or at least, I'll leave that to you to judge. Because, as we're going to see here, it says many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, of course, the only miracle we have been shown is the changing of the water into wine at the wedding at Cana in chapter 2, this chapter we're in. However, Jesus did many, many miracles. So think of it this way. If you didn't know that he did miracles, one after another after another, then it might be a fair enough question to ask him, show us a sign. But when he's doing miracles after miracles and you're still wanting a sign, then I say there's something wrong. These people are attitudinally challenged. And it wouldn't have mattered if Jesus had raised the dead. They still probably would not have believed because of the hardened heart. So don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures here and let's find out together. Because though God graciously proves himself again and again in power, in love, in faithfulness, some will still say no, even if many say yes. So let's begin with chapter 2, verse 18 of the Gospel of John. 
it says that they asked him, what sign showest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Now, what things are we talking about? We're talking about how he cleansed the temple. And basically, let's remember the background. He has just single-handedly purged the temple of its Grand Bazaar merchandise atmosphere because, well, they were making God's house into a marketplace. And he said it should not be this way. So they are stunned by his abrupt show of authority, this single-man army. So therefore, these Judeans, in other words, the local religious hierarchy of the temple compound, asked him a question. Give us a sign that you can show us by what means you are authorized to do these things. Yes, the question can be legitimate, but when the attitude is wrong, as it clearly will be manifested, then they are wrong, even with the right question. A negative and a positive is not a positive, friends. A negative and a positive is still a negative. Therefore, what is Christ's answer? And this is an astounding answer. It's obviously not clear-cut to them, and frankly, it wouldn't be clear-cut for us except for the fact that the Scripture explains what he meant. So Jesus, in response to the question, show us a sign. He's giving them bigger-picture detail, even though they barely could see the individual trees. It says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up after three days. Now, remember, he had cleansed the temple. He's now being queried, if not interrogated, by these folk, these people who are running the temple compound. He's claiming he will raise the temple in three days. Now, he could have, we weren't there when he said it, been pointing to himself rather than pointing to the temple building. If he was pointing to himself, then they didn't get the message. Because, as we said, he, like so many things, he speaks words of life, he speaks words of light, he speaks words of truth, but those who refused to believe just didn't get it. Remember, at the trial of Jesus, he was accused of plotting to destroy the temple. This is in Matthew 26, verses 60 to 61, and in Mark 14, verses 57 to 59. And, of course, plotting to destroy the temple of God would be considered a great crime, let alone a great sin. Jesus, of course, says he's not going to destroy the temple. He's going to raise up the temple. Well, the temple, of course, he's referring to is not the marvelous edifice built by Herod the Great. No, the temple he's going to raise up is his own body. We learn in Romans 6, verse 4, that the Father raised Christ from the dead. And we learn in Romans 1, verse 4 and eight eleven that the Holy Spirit raised up Jesus from the dead. And of course, here in John two nineteen, he says he's going to raise this body from the dead. Therefore, get the message, the three persons of the Godhead are all involved in what we call the resurrection. Wonderful thing. It is a team effort. Now, of course, what happens is those hearing his answer are incredulous. And they make the statement, this temple of Herod commenced in the year 20 B.C. And now it's probably around 26 
AD. And therefore, 46 years have transpired since the beginning of the temple's construction. In fact, even while Jesus walked the earth and in the temple courtyards teaching and doing his ministry, it was still under construction. The final completion of Herod's temple wasn't until 64 AD. That means it was under construction for something like 84 years. What is most paradoxical is that when it was finally completed in 64 AD, that was a mere six years before it was brutally destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 AD. And it hasn't been rebuilt from that time till now. Of course, I don't think God ever was that fussed about physical temples. After all, if he was, then God has been greatly disadvantaged because physical temples for his glory in the holy city have only been for a short part of all of history. Now, God is too big and too grand to worry about buildings made by human hands. Remember that from a Hebraic point of view, it wasn't that they believed that God lived in the temple. Yes, he was there. But it wasn't like that was the only place he dwelt in or that he dwelt nowhere else. No, the idea of a temple, unlike the ancient Greeks and Romans with their many gods and goddesses, no, the Hebrews understood that the temple was the virtual local earthly address where you could appear before God year after year. Of course, he's the God of heaven and earth. He fills heaven and earth. He's beyond space and time. But the temple was a place you could go to tangibly and proactively meet with God. The good news for us is there hasn't been a temple for 1,900 years, and we can meet with God anytime, anywhere, because according to Hebrews 4 and verse 16, the throne of grace is open to us, and we may boldly enter therein. So now Jesus responds, or actually he is being interpreted in John chapter 2, verse 21. When he, Jesus spoke about, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up on the third day, the temple he meant was his physical body. Now in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22, and 1 Peter 2, verse 5, it speaks of the church as the body of Christ, and that Christ himself is the head of that body. So Jesus' body and our body are temples, temples of the Holy Spirit. So this, of course, is something we should never forget. And by the way, since our bodies are to be given to God as a living sacrifice, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, and our temples or bodies are the temple, I should say, of the Holy Spirit, it's very important we take care of this body and that we don't do anything to our bodies that God would disapprove of. So if you're not sure whether God would approve of a certain type of action you want to take with your body, then, of course, what should you do? You should inquire of the Lord and only do that which he leads you to. After all, it's now his body, and he delights to dwell therein. It tells us in verse 22 of John 2, when Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit reminded the disciples of these statements. This caused them to believe the scripture and the words that Jesus spoke. Psalm 16, verse 10, probably was a verse 
they had in mind. And then in verse 23, seeing is believing. When people in Jerusalem believed in Jesus, they did so because they saw miracles, and that's in the plural. We only have seen one miracle ourselves, but Jesus did many because, well, he's a miracle-working God. And then in verse 24, very interesting point. Even though the people believed in Jesus because of the miracles, it says that Jesus did not commit himself to this, quote, believing multitude. Why? Because he knew what was in human hearts. Remember the phrase that a week is a long time in politics? Well, this is not politics. This is theology. This is spirituality. This is eternity. But the principle still holds people can be adoring one moment and then they can change like Melbourne weather and become very rude and contemptuous and what have you. So Jesus didn't take too seriously their professions of devotion and adoration. After all, everybody likes a success story. And at this early stage of Jesus's ministry, he was a roaring success. He was so wildly popular because he did so many powerful things and spoke so many powerful words. And no doubt because of his popularity, it caused jealousy and resentment on the part of the religious elite. He knew that, and that's why he kept his distance for the time being. Our final verse for this lesson, John 2, verse 24, it says, Jesus knows all. He did not need the approval of people whose opinions are transient and fleeting and they can flip-flop at any time, Jesus already knew what was in the heart of other people. That's why he was a bit discreet and wise in his dealings with everyone. Now, our lesson is called, Give Us a Sign. What is our lesson for life? It is this. When you are born again and spirit-filled, the mysteries of God's kingdom are no longer mysteries. taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.